Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Good morning, everyone. Do we have audio yet? Okay. Good. And welcome everybody here. It's a great privilege to gather together as the Lord's people to lift up our praises to Him and hear from Him. We want to especially welcome you if you're a visitor. And if you are, uh, we would love to have some information about you so that we can pray for you and welcome you better. These little cards are in some of the pockets in front of you. If you would grab one of those and um, give us your name and uh, put that in the offering plate when it comes around, that will give us an opportunity to pray for you as a body. And we gather on Wednesday evenings for prayer at 6.30, so I encourage you to make that a part of your schedule and to be here with us when we pray together as a body. Um, I also want to mention to you that uh, coming up in two weeks, that is two weeks from yesterday, there will be a shower for Chris and Candace. It will uh, be for all Grace Heritage adults and uh, hosted at our house on Saturday, April 16th. And I believe that starts at 5.30. Is that right? Okay, so if you need more information, you can talk to Debbie about that. Uh, Well, y'all probably noticed that uh, springtime is here, and that means the birds are singing and uh, the flowers are blooming, and also the grass and the weeds are growing. And this gives us an opportunity to uh, serve. And I'm told that there is a sign-up sheet in the back for groundskeeping, so uh, if you have ability and time to do that, we would certainly uh, appreciate your contribution to that ongoing need. Uh, We want to welcome Brian Preston and his family, wife Lori and Josh and Sarah and Hannah. Is that right? Uh, And we appreciate you all coming. Uh, Brian is also from Heritage Church in Fayetteville, Georgia, where Hank Rast uh, is a Uh, one of the pastors who was here last week, and I was musing on this this morning. It seems that in in order to be an elder at your church, you have to send a student to Auburn. Is that right? Sarah's a freshman at Auburn. Uh, I know of at least three examples where that's the case. Hank has had a son who came to Auburn, and uh, one of their other elders sent four boys to Auburn, and now Brian, so I guess that's one of the new requirements there. And that shows wisdom. We all know that. So, So that's a... Not irrelevant qualification, I think. But we are here to worship the Lord. That is our business this morning. That's what God has called us to do. He has an appointment with us here. And if you would, stand with me and we will read together from Psalm 28, verses 6 through 9. This is on the front of our bulletins. Blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we praise you because you are our shepherd. 
we praise you that you are worthy of our, of our coming and of our gathering and of our singing and our praying and worshiping you. Father, we know that you are powerful, that you are able to do all things. And Father, we are needy people. And Father, we even recognize, even as we, as we read together from your word these praises, that so often our hearts do not rise to the level of the praise to which you are due, the praise even that is recorded for us in these words. Our hearts are slow and our hearts are hard. Father, we ask that you would open them. Soften our hearts, Father, that we might see your glory, that we might feel deeply your worth, that we might hear your word with eagerness and hunger, that we might recognize, Father, that you are our only source of strength and life. And Father, may our, may our praises and our prayers and our thanksgiving and all that we do today be for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Come Christians, join the scene. carry us through, not only in this age, but the age to come, one who has already won the battle for us. Let's sing to him.
to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 he reminds them of something that they already know and yet clearly they do need to be reminded they need to be told over and over again for he, he says for I delivered to you which tells us that he had already told it to them and yet he's going to tell them again and like the Corinthians we need to hear it again and again so he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. What this reminds us of is that our faith is not simply a subjective thing. It's not just what we feel in our hearts. It's not something that's just maybe good for us, but not necessarily good for others or something like that. But it is rooted in actual events of history. There was a real man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life. There was a real man who died on a cross. There was a real man who was raised on the third day. These are real things, actual events of history. But that's not all. Because this passage also tells us that he died not just as a historically interesting fact or something really unusual, but he died for our sins. So it's not just an event, but it's an event with a meaning. And when he died, and when he was buried, and when he rose, it is God's assurance to his people, to those who have placed their trust in him, that their sins are dealt with finally, that their sins are forgiven. So if you come into this place with sins that need to be dealt with, and to one degree or another we all do, then this, let this assure your heart that Christ will receive you. And let us take a moment to silently confess our sins to him and remind ourselves of the gospel that Christ died for our sins and dealt with them once and for all. Father in heaven, we thank you for this testimony. We thank you for the 
the actual life and death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That you have broken into history to rescue helpless sinners. And you have once and for all dealt with our sins. I ask, Father, that you would help us to grasp these things in our hearts and that these would change, these truths would change us and give us strength to live boldly and confidently before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together again as we sing. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you need to use a a pew Bible, one should be in reach in front of you. In in that Bible, the reading begins on page 956. We'll be reading through 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Every once in a while, I try to do. I, I foolishly tell myself that I can fix something that's broken about my car, and uh, so I will try to fix it. And usually, somehow or another, I muddle through. And that experience usually tells me that the, the next time when it's time to fix my car, I am very happy to pay a mechanic who is skilled 
and capable of doing it much better than I am. And um, that just reminds me in a very small way of one of the points that Paul makes here in this passage. He makes the case that those who labor in the gospel are worthy of financial support for their labors. If my mechanic, who I gladly pay, especially after I've tried it myself, is worthy of being paid to change a tire or something like that, then how much more ought those who labor in the gospel to be worthy of financial support for their labors? If we can find it worthwhile to pay somebody to fix our cars or cut our hair or even fight our wars, you mentioned soldiers in here, then surely we should be glad to pay for the ministry of the gospel. Scripture tells us that God's word is far more valuable than even precious things like silver and gold. In fact, it says that nothing can compare to it. They perish, but the word of God abides forever. And so that's an important part of what we're going to see in this passage. But also, we, we see that Paul tells us that even ministers of the gospel must listen to the gospel. It's not just those who hear, not just his, his hearers, but he himself must listen to the gospel. And it is to be the focus of every believer and should call for our highest efforts to know Christ. Follow with me as I read chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge 
so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Give thanks to him and lift up our request to him. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have entrusted us with such an incredibly precious message. It is far more valuable than silver or gold. Those things perish. But you offer a life that never perishes. Christ's work for us, living, dying, and rising again on behalf of sinners is able to save our souls now and to secure them for eternity. So, Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see that we are hopeless and helpless without it. And help us to see also, Father, that we are rich beyond measure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to show by our lives and our actions what kind of value the gospel has. Help us to give up everything that hinders so that we might know Christ. And Father, we recognize that there are some here who may have never grasped the gospel clearly, may have never seen its worth, and may have never seen their own need of it. And so they don't know the surpassing value of Christ. And so, Father, we ask, we plead on their behalf that you would open their eyes today to help them to see clearly and to see Christ. Father, we ask that you would enable us to show the supremacy of Christ to a watching world. Your law tells us that we are to have no other gods before you. So, Father, help us to put you first in our hearts, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our actions. May you be glorified through that. Our Father, we look around in the world and we see upheaval in every direction. Father, we grieve over the suffering and loss 
that has been experienced and is still being experienced in Japan. We ask, Father, that you would have mercy. We ask that you would mobilize help, that you would bring assistance to people who are suffering, that you would bring food and shelter and medical care to those who need it. We ask, Father, that you would work in the situation with the nuclear reactors and bring that under control. But, Father, beyond that, help us all to see that that this life is only a, a passing time. That we have a, a longer time facing us after that. And we must face that either in Christ or outside of Christ. So I ask, Father, that through this event that we would all be reminded of the value of the gospel and that there would be many opportunities to speak of it to others. Father, we also want to lift up the situation in Libya, and we ask that you would give wisdom to those who are in charge of that situation. We ask, Father, that you would bring peace in the right way. Father, we ask that you would give wisdom to President Obama in leading our country in terms of our own involvement in that. And, Father, he he has many other important issues facing him, and we ask that you would grant wisdom to him in those things as well. We thank you, Father, that uh, the kings and the president's hearts are in your hand. Father, we also want to lift up uh, one of our local ministries here, Women's Hope Medical Clinic, and we ask, Father, that the gospel would go forth through that, that those who are hurting and in need of help would find help there and encouragement. We ask that you'd give wisdom and skill and leadership to Larry Webb and compassion and help to those who are volunteering and that you would raise up other volunteers and also help them with their financial needs. Father, we think of Lakeview Baptist Church that is gathered together even this morning to worship you and to hear from your word. And we ask, Father, that you would be pleased with their worship. We ask that you would be with Pastor Al Jackson as he brings the word of God to them, that it would feed your sheep. And Father, as we come to a time of giving our tithes and offerings, this is a great opportunity for us to express exactly what we read in the passage this morning, that the gospel is more valuable than silver or gold. So help us to express that even in our, in our giving, that it would be an act of worship and it would be an expression of our value, the way we value the gospel. Father, we recognize that we're here because you've brought us here. And so we ask that you would incline our hearts and our ears to your word. We ask that you'd bless Brian Preston as he comes to preach to us. We ask that that what he speaks would be what you speak and that your spirit would own it to build up your people and to draw those outside of Christ to yourself. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our supremely valuable Lord and Savior. Amen.
Let's stand together and sing. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah, oh my soul Jehovah, praise. Oh, oh, sing the glorious praises of my God through all my days. Put no confidence in princes, no for help on men depend. He shall die to dust return. Greetings from Heritage Church. Uh, Hank Rast was with you last week. And uh, we are glad that we can be here today, my family and I. And uh, as, as we read this morning, we'll read from Ezekiel chapter 36. So if you would turn to Ezekiel 36. Uh, all kidding aside, we do have uh, a couple more elders that don't have children. Uh, they have attended Auburn. But we do have another elder who may send his daughter here next year. So uh, it's not a prerequisite, but uh, we are glad uh, to have our daughter here. Uh, Glad that uh, the Lord has found it fit that she would be here. So Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll start at verse 22 and uh, read through the end of the chapter. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, 
Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain, make it abundant, and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with the flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have sung your praises. You are great beyond measure. We have sung from, from our hearts that would, we would praise you, great Jehovah. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless it, that it would go forth this day. Lord, send your Holy Spirit now that we would, we would rejoice in what you have done, what you have promised, and what you are doing in this world. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Ezekiel is a very difficult book to preach from. 
because most of it has imagery that is very difficult to understand. It's not my intention to go into all of that imagery today. My intent really is to look at the triune God in saving a people. As we look this morning, Ezekiel is given through the book of Ezekiel and all of the chapters, most of it is very difficult. It's a hard message. In Ezekiel 2, God says, I will give you a message of mourning and woe and lamentation. Not a message most people want to give. And in fact, Ezekiel is such a shepherd that God knows that he would recoil from that. So in Ezekiel 3, God gives him a forehead like flint. And flint is a very hard substance, as we all know. But a forehead like flint that he would not repent from giving the message. But in Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel is such a good shepherd to God's people, unlike many of the shepherds at this time, that he is... Uh, verse 5, I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. He's given the message of God to give to the people of God. and He's overwhelmed with the message. God gives him a forehead like flint so that he would continue because God knows that his people will not repent. And it's sort of an illustration. If you had a doctor who was delivering news to a patient and the patient wouldn't listen to the doctor. And the patient keeps coming back, and the doctor has the remedy for the situation. It can very easily be a discouraging thing. I need to tell them, but they're not going to listen. God says, tell them anyway. Tell them again. Tell them again. I want them to hear this. Ezekiel was uh, born at the time that King Josiah reigned. King Josiah, if you looked in uh, 2 Chronicles or 2 Kings... Josiah was a great king. Great reforms happened under Josiah. And if you remember, the law of God had been lost during the reign, prior to the reign of Josiah. He becomes the king at a young age. High priest finds the law of God. He brings it. Josiah repents. He tears his clothing as they did in the Old Testament or Jews do as a sign of repentance. And he has great reforms and stills great reforms in the nation of Israel. So Ezekiel heard him, but it's likely that Josiah died when Ezekiel was about 13 years of age. So he was a young man. He had heard Josiah. He had seen the reforms in Israel. Josiah's sons become king, and things go south from there. Very bad things happen. The nation is now in exile at the time that this message is given to Ezekiel. Uh, One of his, uh, someone else who preached at the same time was Jeremiah. And it's very likely that Jeremiah had preached and Ezekiel had heard him preach. If you look through some of the message of Ezekiel, it's similar to what Jeremiah had preached. So you can see that the Lord was giving this message of uh, mourning, woe, and lamentation. But in the midst of this, there are great promises of what God will do. (laughs) 
As I mentioned, Josiah was king. He had died. Ezekiel sees the destruction of the nation. And the message that Ezekiel is given is God is jealous for his own glory. He is jealous for his glory. And the people of Israel are in captivity because of their own sin and idolatrous ways. So if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 8, we'll look at a couple of the verses in Ezekiel 8. In, in chapter uh, 10, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 10, Ezekiel goes in and he sees abominations in the temple. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. So in God's temple, they had idols. Verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his own room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said to me, You will see still greater abominations that they commit. So even the the ones who should have been shepherds were... uh, were idolatrous. Verse 14, Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was an idol. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see still greater abominations than these. So idolatry was rampant in the nation. It's a terrible thing. In the history of the Old Testament of God's people is God blessing these people and them going back to their idolatrous ways. God blessing them again, calling them to himself, and again, idolatry. I have a co-worker who's from South Africa. He had a a cattle ranch in Namibia. It's 4,000 acres. Previously had cattle in it. So there were barbed wires all or barbed wire fence all around the outside of this ranch. And his desire was that he would have a wild animal ranch. So he noticed that the wild animals would come in herds and they would jump over the fence. And herds of zebra and other animals that we in, in the West don't see very often. So they kept jumping over. So he had a couple of his... Uh, cattle hands help him and they removed a large portion of the fence with the hopes that more animals would come in. Well, he noticed that they would still come in and they would jump over the fence where the fence wasn't there anymore. And it's a good illustration of God's people in the Old Testament. Quite frankly, us apart from grace. The Lord tells us, come to me. But if we don't come to him, we'll still jump the fence, even though it's not there. We'll still try to create our own righteousness and do things trying to earn favor with God. So I I thought that that was a good illustration, and we'll come back to that later. But this is the people of Israel jumping the fence. Ezekiel continues, the destruction is deserved to the nation, but God will bring a people to judge his nation And he will then judge those people because they're acting in their own sinful ways against God's people. 
And God is jealous for his name. And then he will work in a people, we read, that to keep his name from being profaned among the nations and one day restore them to a place like the Garden of Eden. Great promise from God himself. And as we read in Ezekiel, God does everything. His motivation is his own glory. We read, it's for my name's sake, not for you, but my name's sake that I will do this. God is jealous for his holy name. Who is this God? Well, he's the one who created all things, who existed from eternity past. He had glory without the need for anything prior to creation. It's blasphemy to say that he needed to create. He did not. He was altogether lovely before creation. There was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in communion, perfect communion before the foundations of the earth. He had no need of anything. He's self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He's the creator of the universe. We could look in Job and he asked Job. Job is a book of, of mourning and woe and lamentation. At the end of the book, Job is finally tired and he's asking God why. God says, chapter 38, Job, gird up your loins. I've got some questions for you. And for us, we have to ask ourselves questions. Do you stop to think about the foundations of the earth and the establishment of their measures? God asked Job that. I measured these out. Did you counsel me in this? No. Think of the oceans. How did God contain the water when there was not yet land? How does he do it today? How does he keep the ocean from not going further than it does? Well, we can describe what happens, but we don't know how he does it. We can't comprehend all that he does. He's deserving of glory in who he is. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah is in the temple. He sees the glory of the Lord, the robe of the Lord, fill the temple. And he says, woe is me. God is holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is, woe, judgment be upon me. I am a man of unclean lips. I have nothing to say. Think of John in the book of Revelation in 117. He comes in the presence of the Lord and he falls down as dead. This is a great God that we serve. And he is jealous for his name. He's always powerful. He's all powerful. He knows all things. Even before we speak, he knows what's on our tongue. How can that be? I've been married for almost 26 years. I cannot tell what is going to come out of my wife's mouth. And in a good way. She's so far different than I am. Thankfully for our children, she's different than I am. But I, can't, I don't know what she's about to say. God knows what every single one of us is about to say before it's even on our lips. He's all present. He's omnipresent. He's always everywhere. How does that work? 
I don't know. I don't know. But he's a good and gracious God. He's unchanging and unable to change. He does not change, which is good for us. He makes promises, he keeps them, and he does not repent of his decisions. In Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I am thankful he doesn't change. I am not consumed because the Lord does not change. He's the sustainer of all things. As Calvin said, he who keeps the stars and the planets in their various orbits is also the God who sustains the smallest toenail of the tiniest infant. You have the two extremes there. Who is this God? Do you know who he is? Have you met him? Do you know what he's like? I promise you, based on the word of God, you will one day give an account to him for everything you have done. If you have not met him, you will meet him. He is jealous for his own name. So this great God has reason to be jealous for his own name. He gives us the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. One of the Ten Commandments. It's so important to him that his name be praised and be glorified that in the Ten Commandments he says, you shall not take my name in vain. Of course, the opposite of that is true and implied in that. We are to praise his name. We are to glorify his name in all that we do. It's obvious that he must seek his own glory. Otherwise, he would be an idolater. Because if his name is greater than any other name, he must be about the business of glorifying that name. We can read in Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be desired above riches. And certainly that is something that we want. We want a good reputation. And it's a good thing to have a good reputation. But God is reflecting his own character, who he is. A good name is to be desired above riches. More than riches. Good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. And it's an amazing thing to me that God is so desirous for the glory of his name that he gives up the treasure of his son for a time. Have you ever thought of that? He empties heaven, if you would, of his son for a time to dwell amongst his people that he would, his name would be glorified. And in saving a people, God is desirous of keeping his great name. You might ask, why does God want a good name? Well, we can see it from our own daily lives. Many of us are sports fans, and we have a favorite sports team. And if somebody else says, well, they're terrible, and we don't think they are, some of us can react very strongly to that. How dare you say that about my team? Of course, that's really the value of a team. It's nice to have them, but in the eternal weight, it's nothing. Many of us work for other employers. Your employer would be ready to fire you if you were 
basically taking the company's name and throwing it in the trash in front of either your competitors or customers. Inherently, we know that a good name is a good thing. It's an important thing, from, even from our daily lives. God is desirous of his holy name, that it would not be profaned. And his people are called for his glory, but not because of anything good in them. We have nothing we can give to God. Nothing. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. Romans 3, there's none good, not one. There's no one righteous. None of us are righteous. Okay, Ezekiel, coming back. The destruction of Israel is announced because of their idolatrous ways. Think of Exodus. God has in Exodus his people. He's taking them out, but he takes them out. And as soon as he takes them out of the land of Egypt, Moses, why did you take us out here? We loved it back in Egypt. Really? We're so quick to forget. And the Lord's people are so quick to forget. As we look at this, I have to ask you, do you take the name of God in vain? Do you use it as you use any other word in your vocabulary? Are you jealous for his glory? If not, I ask you, why not? Are you more jealous for the glory of your favorite sports team, your school, your own name? He is jealous for his name. If you are jealous for his glory, it's because he's changed you. Blessed be his name. But in being jealous for his name, he has a remedy here that is an amazing thing. He is going to give his good shepherd. Let's turn to Ezekiel 34. And we'll look at uh, verse 11. It says in verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds in thick darkness. Then I want to skip down to uh, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So the question we have to ask ourselves, why would God have to send a shepherd? Well, it's necessary because his, he describes his people as sheep. They're similar to sheep. They go their own way. We have all, like sheep, gone astray. Not the brightest animal. In fact, they're fairly dumb. They have very little sense of what dangers exist around them. It really isn't that us apart from grace. We can sort of go along our ways and think everything's okay. 
not realizing as we sung in a mighty fortress is our God, there is someone who is opposed to us and will destroy us if he has his way. Apart from grace, we won't see it. Sheep are very clueless about their lives and needs. They sort of just eat and move to wherever the shepherd brings them. But if there is no shepherd, they're lost very easily. And they get themselves in pickles they can't get themselves out of. And then they just sit there and they have no idea what they should be doing. And the shepherd that God has given or is promised in Ezekiel is a good shepherd. Think of the gentleness of a shepherd going after a lost sheep. He's not beating them with a rod. He's taking the staff and he's bringing them back. We can read in Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He's the gentle shepherd. In Luke 19.10, Jesus Christ says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that what was lost. He's going after the lost sheep. He's going for those who don't know him. Have you ever been lost? Let me give, give you an example. I went to Bulgaria four years ago for work, and we went out into the mountains, and we had dinner one night. We had to walk from where we were, and it's the darkest I have ever seen in my life. And the guide that we had, the person who was with us, we were completely dependent upon him to get us anywhere because even if we could get out of that area, my colleagues and I had no idea where we would go. We were completely unfamiliar with the land. Thankfully, our guide was a good guide and he didn't get us lost. He knew exactly where we were going, but we couldn't see our hands a couple feet in front of us. Without a shepherd, we would have been lost. And this man was a shepherd to us. Well, who is this good shepherd that God promises? We read, God will be, in verse 11, 34, I myself will search out for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock. So God is saying, I am this sheep, uh, this shepherd. I am the shepherd. And at the end of that chapter, or in verse 23, it says, it'll be my servant David. Well, who is it? Is it David or is it God? We know that David has been dead for some time by the time that Ezekiel was written. So it's not David, but it's David's son, yet David's Lord. And we see here the promise of the great shepherd being the God-man, both God and man. He says, I will do this, and the shepherd will be David, like David, a man. 2 Samuel 7, David has a promise from the scriptures that through his line, this shepherd will come. And we see that it is the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search out for my sheep. John 10. Let's turn to John 10.
In verse 11, Jesus, Jesus is talking in this uh, passage that he is the good shepherd. In verse 11, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is saying, I am this one shepherd that was promised long ago. I am the shepherd. Remember John in his view of of Christ. Behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. John could see it. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And what is the motivation for this shepherd, Jesus Christ? Let's turn to John 17. Because Jesus has a motivation. And his motivation is the glory of the Father's name. He is about the business of glorifying the name of the Lord. Verse 6, he says in his high priestly prayer, this is right before he's given over to be crucified, and he's praying. And he says, I have manifested, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I made known your name to these people. Verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Verse 12, I have guarded while I was with them. I kept them in your name. Jesus is about glorifying his Father's name. And seeing to it that his disciples glorify his name. He is jealous for the glory of the Father. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. But with the precious blood of Christ like that of a Lamb, without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. In the last times, for the sake of you, for your sake. How can this be? Well, let's look at this lamb. The lamb is like the lamb in Exodus. You think of Exodus. There was a lamb, the blood of the lamb, that had to be put on the doorpost. If the blood was there, the angel would pass over. If the blood wasn't there, the firstborn would be taken that night, would be killed. Jesus' blood, if you have his blood to your account, given to your account, God will pass over in judgment because he's already passed judgment on his lamb. He has paid the penalty for your sins if you are in Christ. He was known before the foundation of the world, which means God planned this in eternity past. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned this in eternity past. That he, foreseeing a fallen race, He would send His Son. His Son would come. He would die. He would rescue. And the Holy Spirit would make this effective in their lives. In eternity past. Which means God is most glorified by sinners coming to Him and praising His name 
and glorifying him. Those who are once, those who profaned his name, now glorify his name. We can read in Ephesians, the angels in heaven long to look into these things. What, those who profaned his name were rescued by the great shepherd and they now glorify his name? How can that be? How can it be? And the angels are amazed and they praise him. Holy, holy, holy is your name because of your great work. It's an amazing thing. Well, if God had given his son and his son died to pay the penalty for sins, but yet no one believed it and there wasn't a heart change, it would be all for nothing. So our triune God sends the Holy Spirit. And we read about that in Ezekiel 36. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. Why does God the Holy Spirit need to dwell within his people? Well, we talked about the record of God's people in the Old Testament. They can't keep covenant. They can't keep covenant. God makes covenants and they break them. So God says, I will make a covenant with myself. The only one who can really keep covenant is God himself. So he makes a covenant, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he keeps it. We can read in Hebrews, it's impossible for him to lie. When he says he'll do something, he does it. Father plans to send the Son. John 16, 5, Jesus says he's returning to the Father who sent him. So this great covenant is God is going to send the Son. The son dies for his people and gives them his righteousness. I am the good sheep. And then the father and the son send the Holy Spirit. If you remember, the disciple, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm ready to go. And they're weeping. He says, no, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, then the Holy Spirit will not be sent. An amazing thing that the Holy Spirit is a promise to the disciples to comfort them. But Jesus, we have you. We can touch you. We can feel you. And that was a great thing. But there's something even greater. He's going to put his spirit within us. Put his, spirits within the, his spirit within the disciples that they would want to obey. Not perfectly, but really obey. Lord, I delight to do your will. Not perfectly as the son did, but now I have a desire to follow you. We would not be able to obey without a change in nature. We read in Romans 3, none good, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. We can't without a new nature. So God tells the people of Israel through Ezekiel, I will take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Great promise. I will write my law on their hearts, 
similar to Jeremiah saying the same thing. I will write my law in their hearts that they would want to obey. I mentioned my co-workers' uh, wild animal farm in Namibia. Remember, the animals would still jump even after the fences were gone. But there's an amazing thing. As the babies would be born, they would run right through where the fence used to be. And they would, he said it's kind of odd. They would almost look back at the herd and wonder why they're jumping. Well, really, that's the new birth. We're born again. We don't have to jump over trying to please the Lord. He gives us a new heart that we want to please Him, and He makes us to run in paths of righteousness. An amazing thing. And this points to a future day in glory when we will not be able to sin anymore. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more for former things have passed away. The promise of the Garden of Eden here or a land like Eden, I'm of the opinion that it's realized in that last day when God restores everything to the way it was in the original creation. He will one day repristinate this earth and we will dwell with Him, sinless, His Spirit indwelling us, seeing Christ face to face. For those of us who are Christians, what a great work God has done for His glory. We are the good recipients of that. For some of the children, you may think, how can this be that God is desiring His glory and what's best is His glory, but yet I benefit? Well, think about going to a friend's house. You're going to sleep over. Mom says, yes, you can go over. So the first thing you think of, I'm going to my friend's house. But also there's the, the benefits of, well, we're going to play these games, we're going to eat this, we're going to watch these movies. Both are true at the same time. But what really set that up was mom or dad saying, you can go. So you can think God's glory is the most important thing and we benefit from it. It's not our glory, it's His that's most important. For those of you who might be unbelievers, let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. As I mentioned, most of this book is mourning, woe, and lamentation. And it's this great promise within that. But in chapter 33, verse 10, he says... And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel. So he's speaking to Ezekiel and saying, speak to the people of Israel. 
Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For those of you who are unbelievers, why will you die? God has done a great work in sending his shepherd for sinners. Not the righteous, but sinners he's come for. Why will you die? He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Do you believe this, God? Do you believe the God who will come, who has come, who will come again next time in judgment? He came in grace, but he's coming in judgment next time. And I must warn you, he will come in judgment. Verse 30 of Ezekiel 33. As for you, son of man, Your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the house say to one another, each to his brother, Come and hear what the Lord is, is that, hear that the word, what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as a people come and they sit before you as my people. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. The word has been preached in your midst, not just for me, but from your pastor and your elder and others. If you will not repent, the mourning, woe, and lamentation that's spoken of in Ezekiel will come upon you. But remember, the Lord does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he would turn from his ways and repent. Let's pray. Father, you have given us your word It is a mighty word, mighty to save. We have here you, Father, you, Son, you, Holy Spirit, the triune God working in a people. Lord, we thank you that you have worked in many here and that you are about the business of glorifying your name, which seems from this passage to be most extent when sinners come to you They repent of their sins. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, take captivity captive today. Take those who do not know you and make them yours to your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Brian. Appreciate, appreciate that word from the Lord. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Jesus, thank you. Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May the Lord encourage us with these words and with the words that we've heard throughout our service, and I ask that you would uh, enjoy a time of fellowship now and uh, and truly fellowship. Encourage one another. And let's gather again 
at 11.15 for Bible study. Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelou Drive, 